So tonight we'll have small groups um, at about 8.35 and uh, talk a little bit until then. But feel free if there are any questions that come up as I'm sharing some of my thoughts, feel free to bring, the, bring up those questions. So partly you can guess, I guess, from the uh, guided meditation tonight that seeing or understanding the importance of making peace with ourselves as a beginning for understanding the experience of compassion. And Sharon Salzberg, in uh, I think it's her book, uh, Heart Wide as the World, shares uh, something from Maha Gosananda, one of the famous, most famous Cambodian monks of the last century. And uh, after that terrible, um, I, forget, I don't even know what to call it. I know they call it the killing fields, but when um, Pol Pot, I guess it was, uh, rose to power, a lot of the monks, including Maha Gosananda, went to Thailand to the refugee camps and established Buddhist monasteries or centers in the camps and became quite famous in just helping the people who were able to survive to heal. And they asked him later, he was uh, speaking at a conference in the United States many years later, like how, what was his philosophy in helping people heal from the tragedy of that genocide that happened in Cambodia. And he said something like, I was making peace with myself. I was making peace with myself. When you make peace with yourself, you make peace with the world. And then Sharon adds after quoting Mahagosananda, she says, Perhaps the essence of forgiveness is just that, making peace with ourselves. We make peace with our courage, I'm sorry, we make peace with our outrage, with our helplessness, with our anger and resentment. For it seems that forgiveness has more to do with ourselves than with others. Once we have made peace with all of those painful aspects of ourselves, we can, see, we can cease hating. We can allow love to come forth. When you make peace with yourself, you make peace with the world. And maybe you had a little taste of that tonight. I, I felt like I did just in the guided meditation of uh, first just the five remembrances where we're, we're using the five remembrances actually to connect with ourselves because we have a very strong sense of who we are, but in that sense, that idea doesn't include, you know, the reality of aging, the reality of being vulnerable to sickness and loss, death, and just the conditional nature of our existence. So by doing the five remembrances, we're actually, you know, it's not like a conceptual thing. It's really used to help us open to the reality of the moment. It's really a doorway in to how it is, this existence. And then um, maybe noticing how our heart is just moved by recognizing that this is an aging body, that the things I really feel dependent on, like my 
close friendships and my you know, having a nice house and a good job that whatever it is, whatever I imagine is supporting my life is fragile and guaranteed to go away at some point. Helps us feel a little bit more raw, more connected to what it really is, this life. And then, then it's easier to, for forgiveness to start to flow because it... Once we've stripped away a lot of the constructions of who we think we are and who we think other people, people are, it's relatively easy for forgiveness to flow because we understand so clearly the limitations of what we call this life or what we call ourselves or somebody else. How, in a sense, uh, how limited or how trapped we are by everything else. Now, in a way, we're trapped, but in a, in a way, we're quite free to relate to this existence in a different way now. So even though, in a way, I'm trapped by my conditioning, or I have to make peace with my conditioning, but that changes things. Blindly acting out my defensiveness and my anger, my impatience, is one thing, and making peace with that, those patterns of conditioning, that's something entirely different and beautiful. So forgiveness, and then just allowing the heart to move, allowing the natural, unbounded, immeasurable capacity for caring, for love, just allowing it to express itself. As I mentioned in the guided sit again, something as simple as just caring about the sensations in the moment. You know, I have some stiffness in my neck and shoulders. And uh, there's many different ways to relate to those sensations. But why not relate with compassion or with caring? Or any frustration or any uncertainty. So it's not just something physical, but we can relate to any phenomena, any moment of experience through that movement of the heart, that very alive, resonant feeling of the heart. But of course, to do that means that we have to open to everything. This is what we talked about last week for the people who weren't around and didn't listen to the recording that Stan has up on the website or on the uh, internet. Just talking about that natural cause and effect that compassion isn't something we imagine or imitate. I mean, we do imagine it, we do imitate it, but that's not compassion, that's something else. That's a construction of the mind. Real compassion is a natural, organic arising when the mind or the heart opens or connects with life, then in a way, the way that compassion, you know, we can use the word compassion and wisdom. Wisdom is the connecting and compassion 
is the effect of that connecting. When the mind, heart opens or connects, then compassion is the natural flowering or result of that connecting. So if we want to be a compassionate human being, we practice, we understand well, what allows the heart to more fully connect. And it doesn't matter what we begin with. Like I said, we can begin with our sensations. We can begin with the person that's in front of us or the activity we're actually doing. We don't have to wait till we have that particular experience where we think it would be easier to cultivate compassion. We can just begin now. One reflection that Sharon mentions that comes out of the Buddhist tradition that I find very powerful, even though it's not like something we want to get attached to as an idea, but just a way to loosen the screws, to loosen our constructions, like the construction, the constructed idea that we're separate or apart. So one of the teachings from the Buddhist tradition, this is just Sharon telling it in her own words. We have been one another's parents and children and attackers and saviors. We have hurt one another and killed one another, helped one another and healed one another. We have all been generous to one another at times. This picture of what we might call the boundlessness of life means that none of us can look at somebody who is behaving badly from the stance of separation or us and them. We can recognize the inappropriateness or cruelty of an act and see it clearly, but not from a sense of separation that views ourselves as being so utterly incapable of ever doing such a thing. We have all done everything. The Buddha has said there is not a place on this earth where we have not all cried, where we have not laughed, been born or died. That this is one example of a vision of life which allows us to see our connectedness. And a little later she says, we may look at someone's behavior and we, and we might say, I would never do that. But to say I have never seen that quality of rage inside of me, I have never seen that quality of desire inside of me. I have never seen that quality of delusion or confusion or infatuation inside of me. A truly honest person would have, would have quite some difficulty saying that. When we look, we tend to see that our mind, like every mind, contains everything. We have all the joys and all the sorrows. We may, we may see through different conditions, through different degrees of awareness of wisdom and act in them in different ways. But to actually be able to say, <coughs> I could never in my wildest imagination feel that way is unlikely. We have to understand our seeming disconnection, our seeming apartness, and examine to see if it is real in any way. I think this is one of the great fruits of these kinds of reflections that we're doing during this course. And even now, you know, even if there's some resonance from the reflection, the meditation earlier, 
you know, one of the effects of that, you know, that perception or that realization of the tenderness of the heart, that sense of uh, caring. And I think, it, like we talked about last week, it can even be described as a brokenheartedness. You know, we use the word tender, that's a little more acceptable to us, but it's almost like that the defenses, the defenses of being apart have been broken down. So it has a broken down quality to it, a broken heartedness, like the sense of separation, sense of being apart gets beaten out of us because it is so hard to maintain. It hurts so much to keep maintaining that sense of alienation or being apart or being better than or being worse than or like that's their problem. I mean, it's one thing to not know that some great tragedy is going on someplace else, you know, South Minneapolis, North Minneapolis, Africa, Asia, or wherever. But once we know that something terrible is going on, like a good friend who's lost the job or something far away you hear or read about in the paper or in the news, once we know about it, it's like uh, it's debilitating and exhausting to not let the heart break around that, to not be sensitive to what's going on. But it's tricky. And this is what I wanted to talk about tonight. Uh, some of you might have seen just before you came, I sent out an email with a few other readings and resources you might want to use in your home practice, one of which is the version of the five recollections or the five remembrances I read tonight, which is Thich Nhat Hanh's translation of, that, of them. And the other thing I sent was just a reminder about Jack Kornfield's chapter in his book, The Path with Heart, uh, chapter 15, which is on generosity, codependency, and compassion. Really, I think a good chapter uh, describing or talking about the shadow of compassion, the shadow of generosity, where we have some sense that compassion is good or generosity is good, but not enough clarity to understand how real generosity arises or how real compassion arises. So we take it up as a neurotic activity, like, oh, it would be good to be a generous or good to be a compassionate person. That's what gets respected. I would respect myself if I saw myself as a compassionate or generous person, so therefore I will become generous and compassionate. And just all the problems that happen with that, that identification, how fragile, how unstable that is. Because, of course, it's unstable because it depends on what other people think or what at least we think about ourselves. You know, am I compassionate enough? Am I generous enough? So I'll just share a few words, a um, few sections rather from this chapter in Jack Kornfield's book, A Path with Heart. He mentions this uh, sutta that most of you have heard before where um, um, 
pair of acrobats, a granddaughter and a grandfather, are talking about how to do their act so they can make their living, you know, their do their dangerous act. And uh, the grandfather says to the granddaughter, you pay attention to me, really tune into what I'm doing, and I'll really tune into you, what you're doing, and that way we won't make any mistakes and we'll get a lot of tips or whatever and we'll be well off. And the granddaughter says, no, actually, I'll really pay attention to what I'm doing, you pay attention to what you're doing, and that way we'll be successful. And the Buddha, when they talked to the Buddha later, acknowledged that the granddaughter was wise, that this is the way. And then Jack Hornfield <coughs> goes on to say here, Codependence and unhealthy compassion arise when we have forgotten our own role in the balancing act of human relationships or when we disregard the true consequences of the actions of others around us. So, because compassion as, you know, in the sense of true compassion, authentic compassion, because it's a natural arising, and the proximate cause for the natural arising of compassion is the mind and heart that's opening to Dhamma the way it is, then when the heart or mind opens to Dhamma the way that it is, it's not just in a narrow way tuning in to this crying baby over here or tuning in to this good friend of ours who's in a really difficult place. It's tuning into everything equally. And this is one of the important things to understand about all of the Brahma-viharas, the divine abodes of loving-kindness and compassion and gladness or appreciative joy and equanimity, is that they all, they're all infused with a, I don't know what the right word is, but a, a kind of uh, equality or inclusivity or non-discrimination. There's no, by definition, you know, loving kindness or compassion or appreciative joy, equanimity, by definition, there aren't boundaries. So we wouldn't have this confusion of, of doing too much to help somebody in a way that creates an unhealthy codependency or an unhealthy balance in our lives. Because by definition, the sensitivity, the opening, is, doesn't have boundaries. It's universal. So if this life, this body, this mind is suffering, we're sensitive to this and in a way more sensitive to it because it's more proximate than anybody else. So we're not excluding our own needs. Like Jack Cornfield says here, when we've forgotten our own role in the balancing act of human relationships. So when we're tuning in to the world around us, we're also tuning in to the one who's tuning in. We're tuning into this mind and body that's tuning in, that's sensitive and vulnerable and open and caring. And it's, not, it's a not forgetting of any of it all. And so part of being tuned in is we're understanding what's happening, what's being set in motion. 
And so if we're getting out of balance, we're understanding what that's about. Maybe some concept that I have to be the one who can really take care of people. I have to be the savior, you know, who's going to save these people, fix my partner, fix my friend. Think about how much suffering, and not just for ourselves, how much suffering we've created for others by these different kinds of unhealthy balances we've been involved in, whether we've been the one sort of demanding, unending giving from another person, or we're the one giving in an unending way to another person. Without unhealthy in the sense of the awareness, the opening is an inclusive of all, including ourselves. That's why I love the chant we did at the beginning, you know, as all as to ourselves, to all as to ourselves. Just a few more things from Jack Kornfeld's chapter. He says a little later, when our self-worth is still low, we cannot set we cannot set limits, make boundaries, or respect our own needs. Our seeming compassionate assistance become mixed with dependence, fear, and insecurity. Mature love and healthy compassion are not dependent, but interdependent, born out of a deep respect for ourselves and others. They can say yes, and they can say no. Like a parent who raises a child wisely, they know when to set limits, when to say no. They love and serve the child, but also respect what the child needs to learn for itself. Sometimes a firm no, or I can't, or I won't allow that, it is beyond my limit, is the most spiritual thing we can say. And then one more thing. The ground for compassion is established first by practicing sensitivity toward ourselves. True compassion arises from a healthy sense of self from an awareness of who we are that honors our own capacities and never uh, our own capacities and fears, our own feelings and integrity along with those of others. It is never based on fear or pity, but is a deep supportive response of the heart based on the dignity, integrity, and well-being of every single creature. It is a spontaneous response to the suffering and pain we encounter. It is our feeling of mutual resonance and natural connectedness in the face of universal experience of loss and pain. As our own heart is opened and healed, it naturally seeks the healing of all it touches. Compassion for ourselves gives rise to the power to transform resentment into forgiveness, hatred into friendliness, and fear into respect for all beings. It allows us to extend warmth, sensitivity, and openness to the sorrows around us in a truthful and genuine way. Compassion may at times give rise to action and at times it may not. It doesn't arise in order to solve problems. Yet out of compassion flows action whenever it need, need be taken. True compassion arises from a sense that the heart has the fearless capacity to embrace all things, to touch all things, to relate to all things. So this is a real aliveness of the heart. And I thought it might be a good, uh, one of the good topics to bring up in the small groups tonight. 
just your own experiences of being with your own difficulty or the difficulty of those around you. But instead of feeling burdened or deadened or in a contracted fear state or in a neurotic, I'm going to fix state, you know, busily doing something because it's too intense to be relaxed, to share times when you felt quite enlivened by the proximity to what's difficult, your own difficulty or others. Jenny, would you turn the lights up a little bit more? And this is why, you know, there's this real pithy line from, uh, again, from Thich Nhat Hanh where he says, compassion is a verb. I think he's really pointing to that the authentic experience of compassion is this enlivened, responsive state. It doesn't mean we have to do something, but it means we feel enlivened, like if there is something to do, we wouldn't be afraid to say it or do it. Because uh, in a way, opening in this way, being undefended in this way, it's enlivening. There's a kind of energy to it. Here's this, uh, some words from the Buddha. There's no fire like greed, no crime like hatred, no sorrow like separation, no sickness like the hunger of the heart, no joy like freedom. Health, contentment, true understanding are your greatest possessions, and freedom is your greatest joy. Live in the joy and love even among those who hate. Live in joy and health even among the afflicted. Live in joy and peace even among those who are troubled. Live in joy without grasping like the shining ones. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the, the sweet joy of living in the way. And I like this and I wanted to read this because, because the world, you know, as we just take our head out of the sand and pay attention, we realize how much suffering there is, how limited this worldly experience is, and uh, it, it can feel inappropriate to be joyful, to be lighthearted. And so, uh, and a lot of people have this sense of Buddhism, you know, that it's somewhat pessimistic, depressing, religion or spiritual practice. But that may be our view and that might actually even be our experience, but it's certainly not the way the Buddha taught. You know how they always make fun of how many words the native people of the north have for snow? Well, you could say the same thing. How many words for joy the Buddha had? You know, he was very aware of every nuance, every beautiful quality of the mind. You know, there's a whole mapping or vocabulary for the beautiful, exalted states of the mind. But all of this beauty arises through connecting with the limitations. As one of the things the Buddha said over and over, I teach only one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. 
So the end of suffering depends on opening to things as they are, opening to dukkha, opening to the limitations of life. This is the proximate cause for the arising of what's beautiful. Not running, not being in denial, not being angry at what's messy, but understanding it, opening to it. And this really will help us tease out the difference between things that can masquerade as compassion. And we all, you know, many of us have studied this a long time, so we know sort of what the Buddha says about this, but we should all know directly, probably we do directly, how uh, like fear so easily can masquerade as compassion, like we're doing something, but we're actually tight and, and uh, feel ration feel that it's rational to be tight to be fearful of what we're exposed to what we're seeing like uh, you know last night in the middle of the night our cat you know which she does every once in a while was just retching up her home dinner uh, you know and it's uh, when I really relax and look and watch her you know, her body seems pretty relaxed. It's amazing just that wave, that, what do they call that, peristolic wave of con- contraction, you know, just kind of coming up, bringing the food up and out. And, uh, but the sound, you know, it, it triggers a response in my mind of like, uh, I don't like it. You know, I don't want her to be struggling. I don't want to deal with it and I don't want to deal with the mess. I don't want to deal with any part of it. I see that part of my mind. <laughs> Luckily, it's Wynn's cat. So. <laughs> but so it's very easy to just see how fear, you know, the fear that something's wrong with the cat that that seems, that seems like a compassionate response to be afraid that something terrible might be going on, like maybe she's got cancer or maybe she has this affliction or that affliction and who knows and, you know, what do you do about it? And so just to be aware of fear, and again, this could be something in the small groups to talk about how fear or even how grief can masquerade the experience of sadness can masquerade as compassion. Grief or sadness in the sense of feeling burdened or deadened or weighed down, like not the opposite of being enlivened. So fear itself, you know, or any emotion, I think we could say, is in its essence just movement. That when the emotion is being resisted in some way, we construct an identity that is afraid of the grief or afraid of the fear and therefore isn't allowing it to express its natural movement, then we start to feel deadened by it. So just to be aware of different places in our life where there is a lot of grief or sadness and, and how heavy that is and how we may just assume that I really care like as a wholesome expression of compassion.
This is from uh, a nice article. I wanted to send it to everybody. It's from Insight Journal, but it's from so long ago, they don't have this one archived online, unfortunately. If you have the 1995 Insight Journal, Sharon has a nice article on the nature of compassion that I'd recommend. If anybody wants to make a copy of it or, or scan it for the group, feel free to take my copy and do that. So what is compassion, Sharon asks. What is this mysterious force that is not anger, not aversion, not guilt, not grief? The traditional understanding of compassion is the trembling or quivering of the heart in response to pain. It is a movement, almost a sense of agitation, but not a restless agitation. So that's a, I thought that was really great. It's a movement, almost a sense of agitation, but not a restless agitation. It's a trembling, a quivering, quivering, and open. It's open, it's tender. So this goes back to what I was saying earlier about some crust, some hardness is being broken down. That's the experience. Like we're, we're going to feel the defensiveness, the, the defenses, I should say, falling apart. And there's going to be a raw a raw aliveness that we're normally, see normally we're kind of bound up and we take that bound up feeling to be normal and, and synonymous with being safe. But when we allow the heart to become unbound, to be close and intimate and exposed, so it's more raw, more alive, like she says, add a sense of agitation but not a restless agitation. It's trembling, it's quivering, it's open, it's tender. The courage of compassion is said to come from equanimity. Because we feel compassion in response to seeing pain, we need equanimity to be able to open to pain in order to not deny it or pretend it's not there or to repackage it so it sounds better or looks better. We need to actually see it for what it is. We need equanimity, we need courage, we need wisdom to be able to open to pain, and then the compassion can come forth. And then just to end again about how important it is to begin with ourself, and then we'll break into small groups. There are texts in which the Buddha is talking about loving oneself and caring for oneself, you can search the entire universe for someone who deserves your love and compassion more than you do yourself, and you will not find that person anywhere. You, more than anyone, deserve your own love and compassion. It is easy for spiritual aspiration to become a sort of martyrdom, where we are only thinking about generosity or care or compassion in terms of others, not in terms of ourselves. Compassion is distinguished from anger, aversion, guilt, and grief, it is also based on the sense of oneness rather than on overlooking ourselves, which might be the usual association we have with the concept. The balance of wisdom and compassion or equanimity and compassion demands that we look at ourselves and the world and be able to say, this is life, this is the world, this is how it is. How many times have we looked at somebody and said, if only I could make your pain go away, I would but we simply can't. This is how it is. 
there are lots of conditions that lead up to this moment and maybe from beginningless time. Where did it start? We so often, we so often can't make the pain go away. We are destroyed by truth. So we are destroyed by truth. Or can we be present? Can we still be present? What allows us not to separate? What allows us not to distance ourselves from that? It is wisdom. It is the quality of equanimity, balance between the movement of compassion and the stillness of equanimity is quite balance between the movement of compassion and the stillness of equanimity is quite subtle. And in every situation, we need to look at it. Ultimately, it is just a question of practice. It's the practice of being aware of our motivations. The practice of metta or compassion will break down the barriers between ourselves and others so that we know it is the practice of wisdom. So again, in the small groups, you might want to share uh, your own experiences of feeling enlivened by compassion, or I should say enlivened by the proximity of what is difficult, what's hard to open to. You might want to share about times when various kinds of defense systems arose when you were in the proximity of what was painful or difficult. and you related with fear, or some kind of wanting to control or fix the situation, or shutting down, or grieving uh, in a way of sort of identification with the pain, with the sadness. But just all the different ways that we separate when we're around pain, our pain or somebody else's pain. It's really good to own that together so that we are normalizing that sort of pervasiveness of that response to suffering. And then, of course, those moments where we didn't do one of those, engage one of those habitual responses. So let's just take a few seconds to reflect, and then we'll count off. Let's see what you might want to say in your small group tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.